0: God be with us this day as we study Your Word. Open it to us and us to it. In Jesus' name, Amen. First session in any study of any book, I like to give a to begin with a few minutes of a basic overview. What are we studying? We're going to be reading the Gospel of Luke to begin with. We'll read through the Gospel of Luke. We'll then go to the to the Acts of the Apostles. Why? because the same author wrote both, all right? There's absolutely no question that the same person wrote both books. That's evident. If you read it in the original language, it's obvious it's the same author, okay? So, historically, it's also been known that that's the case. But we're going to start with Luke, the Gospel of Luke itself, and read through it. Now, where do we get it from? Where does the Gospel of Luke come from? How did it come down to us? In, in my NRSV here, how did it get in here? Where did it come from? The Greek. Er, I'm sorry? Greek. Greek. It came translated from the language it was written in, which is Greek. And it came to the translators of the various Bibles that we have through a, a, a string of transmission. Um the author of the gospel, we're going to call him Luke for right now. The author of the gospel wrote the Gospel, all right? He wrote it down, the autograph, the original manuscript, which then was copied, probably copied, in the first generation a few times. Then, one of those was copied in a second generation, probably several times, and the same would be true over here, and so on. This copy, the second generation copy, was copied a bunch of times. So, if the Gospel of Luke was written in 85 AD, and that's probably right, or somewhere in that neighborhood, then your first generation is probably sometime between, oh, I don't know, anytime from the authorship all the way up to about 100. They were probably making a few copies off of the original. This next generation would be anywhere from, let us say, the 90s up to 110. The third generation would be anywhere from about 100 up to about 150, let us say. Uh, Pastor, when you are talking about these copies, are they all Greek copies? Yes. Is some of Hand Greek copies. Now, there were parallel to the Greek. The earliest copies in Latin came out. Sometime around here, the Old Latin would have first started occurring about 100 to 110 A.D. The very earliest Old Latin copies of the Gospels that we have come to about 120 or so. And it was the first languages that it was ever translated into out of Greek was Latin and Syriac. and Coptic. Those are the three big languages it was first translated into. Syriac is a version of Aramaic, which is the language that Jesus spoke. But Old Latin, Syriac and Coptic, and anywhere after about 125 AD those manuscript translations start showing up in great diversity. But right now we're going to focus on the Greek. If you have an NRSV, an NIV, an NASB, or any other modern translation after about 1970, your Bible has been translated from the fourth generation's copies. Our earliest extant copies of the New Testament date to right after this period here. We got fragments from 125, and they may be third, or possibly second, but more likely third generation copies. We have more extant copies of Paul's letters from about 150 to 200. And then our first fragments of the Gospel of Luke, something called Papyrus 75 and Papyrus 4 all date to the fourth generation of copies somewhere between 150 and 220. No later than 220 because they've been carbon dated as early as 200. And some copies have been hand identified by their, their writing style to as early as 150. So hard to say. Um, And they can't carbon date everything because he'd destroy the material doing it. That means that our Bibles, the most modern that we have, are translations into English from the Greek of of copies of copies of copies of copies of the original. Now, I love the King James. Beautiful translation. But to get the King James, you would have... 3rd, 4th, 5th, 6th, 7th, 8th, ninth, and about the 10th generation copies beginning in about the year 1100 A.D. through 1350 A.D. is when the manuscripts behind the King James were copied copies of 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 the autograph now at each copy stage at each copy stage you have chance for scribal errors coming in the scribe who's copying the copy that he's making from the copy before him he might introduce a little error by mistake there are lots of different kinds of copy errors We will run into them on occasion. And a few of the interesting differences between, let us say, a King James and an NRSV, some of them have to do with the textual background due to copy errors. The Greek textual exemplar, the the Greek (coughs) edition of the New Testament that I use is the 27th edition of the Greek New Testament. Is essentially an um, edited together version of all the most ancient copies of the New Testament we have going back to between 150 and 350. Luke, for Luke, for the Gospel of Luke, our oldest fragment is something called Papyrus 4. It dates to 175 to 225, more likely closer to 175 because the handwriting looks like somebody who was trained sometime in the middle part of the second century. And it contains Luke chapter one, verses 58 and 59, chapter one, verse 62 through chapter two, verse one, verses six and seven, chapter three, verse eight through chapter four, verse two, verses 29 through 32, 34 through 35, Chapter 5 verses 3 through 8 and chapter 5 verses 30 through 6, chapter 6 verse 16. So in other words, it's highly fragmented. It's a highly fragment few pages of the Gospel of Luke that survived. How did it survive? uh, Papyrus 4 survived um, because it was used as a lining (laughs) to protect another copy of the Bible. That was written in Latin and was used to line the box that the Latin copy was in, that dated to about a thousand. <laughs> the person who lined that box to protect this very valuable translation, I a mean, Latin translation of the Bible, did not know what he was using. He just took some paper from their library that was going to be burned and he used it to line the interior. And because he did that, we have one of the oldest fragments of the Gospel of Luke. A more substantial copy of it is called Papyrus 75, which is early third century, about 200 to 225 AD at the very latest. The handwriting of the author looks like it; he was trained a little earlier than that, so it could theoretically date to maybe 10 to 15 years earlier. And it contains more. It contains Luke chapter 3, verses 18 through 4.2, 4.34 through 5.10, 5.37 through 18, 18, and 22, 4 through 24, 53. So a more significant segment of the Gospel of Luke in its entirety in segments and then fragments elsewhere. And that's the earliest, most complete we've got. The most complete copy, that, in fact, the, the earliest complete copy we have is found in something called Codex Sinaiticus, which is, was written in about 350 to 400 A.D., closer to 350 A.D., uh, at the order of Constantine the Emperor and it's complete it's not fragmented and it looks it, 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 its readings are very close to what we have in Papyrus 75 so in, in point of fact we have copies therefore that are essentially fourth and fifth generation copies of the original this era, uh, uh, what I just gave you by the way I, I just, I'll just hand it out now, this is the field of biblical studies known as textual criticism. In the field of textual criticism, the objective is to determine what the author wrote, what the author of the biblical book you're reading actually wrote. And the only way to determine that, determine that is to compare and contrast all the various copies that we have especially from the earliest period of those copies. If we get back to the second generation, if we get to the first generation, that would be wonderful. It's highly unlikely we have a first generation copy of anything. There's a possibility we have a second generation copy of John's Gospel. There's a possibility we have a second generation copy of some of what Paul wrote, but only a possibility. The likelihood doesn't start until you get to the third generation then you start having likelihoods. The area or the, actually it's an art and a science of textual criticism is to examine the text of all the copies we have to determine what the author wrote. All of our translations depend upon this science and this art. They depend upon it uh, deeply because if you don't have, uh, you have to eventually make a decision as to what manuscript you're going to copy from and translate from. Most modern translations go with a a critical edition of the Greek text that's been put together by scholars in this field. Uh, In the field not only of determining which is the best reading, but also preserving. When I was in seminary and in the doctoral program, one of the things that I did was I took a PhD minor, a second concentration, in textual criticism and in the preservation of the New Testament text and I loved doing it so danger warning Will Robinson if you if you ask me questions about the text you're going to get a long answer because it's one of those things that I find very fascinating on occasion these types of issues will come up in our reading because of the differences between translations some of the difficulties in certain translations and when that happens what I'll tell you is okay Uh, A manuscript from the 4th century says this. A manuscript from the 7th century says that. The one from the 4th century is probably a better reading, so we'll go with that. All right? You see how that works? And if there's a difference between the King James and the NRSV, for instance, frequently it's because of that. Or the fact that the King James is written in 1611 English, which is archaic in the extreme. And English has changed tremendously. I'll give you an example. What does it mean, the verb to let, L-E-T? What does it mean? Allow. It means to allow. But it also can mean to lease. Yes. A form of that verb. In 1611, it meant to hinder. It meant to prohibit. To let has completely changed its meaning in the nominal verb form of it that we use today in colloquial English. Isn't that fascinating? There are other examples from the English of the 1600s that are uh, inside the King James that give us trouble when we read it, as well as grammatical constructions that are extremely unusual to us today. Uh, for that reason, it's probably better to read a more advanced, tr- a later, more recent translation, but there are textual reasons, among them being that you're dealing with tenth or later generation copies of the alter- from the autograph. More time for errors to creep into the copying process. And over time, uh, we'll, we'll see a few of those. Some of them are actually very hilarious. So we'll see a few of them. I use the, um, the, the uh, edited, what's known as the nestle Aland Greek New Testament in the 27th edition. There's actually now a 28th edition now, but it really isn't any different. There's another edition that's a critical edition of the Greek text called the uh, Majority Text by Hodges and Farsted. And it's actually a very good rendering of the text according to the majority reading. Not antiquity, but majority. What did the majority of the copies say? Not what did the earliest copies say necessarily, but what did the majority of the copies say? That's not a bad way of going about it, but unfortunately the majority can be wrong, as we well know. And, and so at times there are differences, but it's interesting to see those differences. The Greek text behind here is a lot like the King James. All right. A lot like it. Okay, if you have any questions about the textual history, I can help you. If you want to see pictures of uh, manuscripts, I can show you those too. They're in these books if you want to take a look at them. Uh, I've taught a class in textual criticism, or at least the basics of it, not the actual process of preserving manuscripts, but but, um, uh, it's a fascinating subject, a fascinating field, and I love it. So in other words, to summarize this, we get our copies of the Gospel of Luke today in our translations because people across centuries copied them faithfully down. They made mistakes when they made their copies but they were faithful in their copy process and because they were, we have, and because of people who kept and preserved them in many different ways, we have uh, wonderful examples from the late 2nd, the early 3rd, through the 4th centuries that we can then base our Bibles on today. So even though this stuff was written down a very long time ago, uh, we can be pretty sure that what we're reading is really close to what the author wrote. So we get our copies of Luke from scribes who were copying them in the 2nd, 3rd, and 4th centuries. That's the answer to that question. Now, next week, uh, one of the things that we'll look at is the question of Luke's relationship to Mark and Matthew. I'll summarize it very quickly today. Luke wrote his gospel based upon Mark's gospel, plus a written document of the sayings of Jesus, plus lots of oral traditions and legends that were in existence in the places where he wrote We'll see examples of that as we read. We'll compare and contrast what Luke says with what Matthew says in certain places, and with what Mark says in the structural outline of the events of Jesus's life. But we're gonna really be paying attention and our, spending our, the balance of our time looking at what Luke actually wrote and how he tells the story of Jesus. Because he tells the story of Jesus from a certain perspective, with a certain theological understanding, with a certain interest in presenting Jesus in a certain way to a certain audience. That's very different from Mark's audience and Mark's way, or Matthew's audience and Matthew's way, and very different from John's audience and John's way. Okay, So you have to keep that in mind as you're reading. Luke was a Gentile. The author of Luke's Gospel was definitely a Gentile. He was not a Jew. He was not a native of Palestine. He may have been there but he was not very familiar with the area. He was depending upon other sources in his writing and he himself tells us that he was not present for the events. He was not an eyewitness to the life of Jesus. He himself tells us that as we will see in a moment. So, keep that in mind as you read you 're reading the work of a scholar of a Gentile thinker who was highly educated, and tradition tells us was a physician well, whether or not he was a physician, if that tradition is true, it equates with some of what we see in terms of his interest in various things, like the questions of healings and what Jesus was actually healing those types of things, um, regardless of how you come out on that question. he was an educated. Greek speaking Greek native person and his Greek by the way also is mm, uh, an eastern version of Greek it's that's why one of the reasons why he's called a Syrian he's probably from Syria Um, a Greek speaking a Greek descended but living in the eastern half of the Roman Empire further east than Greece further east than Turkey uh, north and actually east of Palestine in the area that is modern day Syria and was Syria then. Because the form of his Greek actually is a little bit Eastern in its structure and style, all right? And you have to kind of depend upon the scholars of Greek to, to, to accept that. So he was an author who wrote um, based upon the writings of others and the, and the stories and oral and written stories of others and he worked hard to produce his uh, version to present it in a specific way and for a specific reason. And as we read, we're going to discover what that is. All right. Questions before we move forward and actually do some reading? How can anybody say that the scriptures are inerrant? Okay. Inerrancy is a doctrine which says that the Bible is without error in their autographs. So in that original original version of Luke that was written by the author, a person who believes in biblical inerrancy would say, that's the inerrant version right there. The copying process and any errors that you find will have been introduced through that copying process. All right? I don't even say that about <laughs> Um Uh, inerrancy is the doctrine that says that the Bible is trustworthy in its autographs. I believe the Bible is trustworthy, but I think inerrancy is too high of a standard to set for it. Uh, Infallibility is another term that is sometimes used. It's not quite inerrancy, but it's still, it says that the Bible is infallible in what it teaches us about faith. I actually kind of believe that. it, It does not teach error about our faith. But that doesn't mean that it doesn't contain the opinions of people. And some of those opinions probably are not right. They may have been right then, they're not right now. There may have been multiple different opinions from that period and you'll find that within Scripture. Another question would be related to that is uh, what about inspiration? Is the Bible inspired? And What does it mean to say that the Bible is inspired? There are lots of different kinds of inspiration. Inerrancy people would say the Bible is inspired and that God dictated Luke to write, Since many have undertaken to set down an orderly account of the events that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed on to us by those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the word, I too decided, after investigating everything carefully from the very first, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. So in other words, an inerrancy person would say God dictated to Luke to write every one of those words in that way. In, in Greek, in the original. Some something he dictated it in English. Well, yeah, <laughs> in the King James, which is given by God to Moses on Mount Sinai. Yeah. But, <laughs> but, but no, inerrancy and true, true people, those who affirm the doctrine of inerrancy would say that God dictated every one of those words in that way to the author in, in the Greek in the Greek original well to me it's very clear verses 1 through 3 uh, completely abrogate deny that statement because he says he did all this work himself but the motivation to do all this work the desire to relate this idea of Jesus this understanding of Jesus this message about Jesus the the impulse to actually write the gospel is an inspiration in and of itself. I can see a sunset and be inspired by it to write a poem or a hymn. I can see a beautiful girl and and write a love poem to her. That's, that's, That's kind of inspiration too. And when you look at the scripture, there's a sliding scale of different kinds of inspiration. From the stuff that seems to be dictation all the way down to the stuff where you see a sunset and inspires you to write a hymn kind of inspiration. And everything in between. Um, I don't accept the doctrine of inerrancy. I apply a kind of understanding of infallibility on matters of faith. Because that's what this book is, is the book of faith. I believe that Jesus is the, the inerrant word of God. Think about it. We say from John's Gospel that Jesus is the Word of God made flesh. I believe Jesus, therefore, is God's only inerrant Word. And infallible Word. And the Bible that we have, and our many different translations, and all these copy processes, contain and communicate to us what Christians throughout the years, and especially those earliest first and second generation Christians, believed about that inerrant word and their encounter with that inerrant word in Jesus. I'm speaking about the New Testament here, in Jesus. So I would say that the scriptures contain and convey to us the faith of the New Testament church in its first couple of generations about the inerrant word of God. All right? In words and ideas and opinions of humans. And, and as such, remember the remember the mathematical uh, uh, proof of if A equals B and B equals C, then A equals C. Remember that? Transitive. Well, that's true here, too. If the scriptures contain and convey the early church's understanding, interpretation, and experience of the inerrant word, who is Jesus, then they, it contains Christ for us. We can read and comprehend who Christ is and was for us through reading scripture. That's how I understand it. Also, in my book, there's a, there's a chapter that deals with inspiration of scripture if you wanna read it, <laughs> hint and shameless plug. Um, but it, and it kind of outlines those various options. I don't believe that God dictated every word. And I think the, very, the these first three verses of Luke prove it. Look at it again. Since many have undertaken to set down an orderly account of the events that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed on to us by those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the word, I too decided, after investigating everything carefully from the very first, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the truth concerning the things about which you have been instructed." Well, that first paragraph presumes a number of things, doesn't it? It presumes that, A, this author wasn't there. He had to investigate. He had to research. He talks about the people who were eyewitnesses in the second person. These are other folk. They're not us. Okay? And he's writing to somebody else. This word too, somebody named Theophilus. And that, that's not that's not Mark and Michelle's cat. That <laughs> that, that Theophilus is a Greek for God lover or lover of God. It may be an a, it, it. It actually was a name at, at the time, but it may it may be either an actual person's name or it may mean it may be a general title. Any person who's a lover of God. One of the things you should remember is that as you read the Gospels oftentimes there are characters that you will encounter who are kind of like empty sandals they're designed for you to step into to experience the story from their perspective sometimes it's a character within the story sometimes it's one of the disciples who will come and ask a question of Jesus why why is this disciple asking this question of Jesus because you need to be asking this question of Jesus so Here, we have Theophilus, who could very well be any lover of God, any Christian, any inquiring person. Theophilus. Or it could actually be a person that Luke was writing to. I tend to think it was a person who Luke was writing to, but I also think, more importantly, actually, it's written to any one of us who are desirous of knowing these things. He doesn't say that the things that were written before were wrong. Quite the contrary. He says he wants to lay out an orderly account as he has come to understand it. All right. He is aware of other writings. And we know from reading it and comparing it with Mark's gospel, he knows the Mark. He has it in front of him as he's writing. And we will see examples of that again and again and again and again and again. And we'll talk about that later, especially next week, as we talk about what's known as the synoptic problem. But uh, for now, Uh, It's clear that he is not an original eyewitness, but that he has spoken to or read the writings of eyewitnesses and those who knew those eyewitnesses with the intention of investigating everything carefully from the very beginning in order to write an orderly account. That's his purpose. That's really important. This man is very, very intent on what he's getting ready to do. Is a very specific reason and he's going to paint a picture that really that really will inform the reader of who Jesus is, what Jesus did, who Jesus is now for the church. And when he gets over into the Acts of the Apostles that simply continues even more through the ministry of the Apostles. But for now we're looking at Luke. Questions before we move on? Chapter 1 is 80 verses long, so we're going to take uh, a little time and read part of it here, stopping like we just did to talk about some things. Verse 5, chapter 1. In the days of King Herod of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah, who belonged to the priestly order of Abijah. His wife was a descendant of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. Both of them were righteous before God, living blamelessly according to all the commandments and regulations of the Lord. But they had no children, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were getting on in years. Uh, kind of interesting here. We don't begin with the birth of Jesus, do we? We begin with this story about Zechariah, a priest, and his wife Elizabeth. And notice there's some details in here that kind of make you go, what are some of these details for? Why is it important that he's a member of the order of Abijah? That's an element, an interesting illustration of Luke's interest in painting the picture with rich detail and placing somebody like Zechariah within the context (laughs) in which he lived. Remember, he's writing to Gentiles, not to Jews. What is this order of Abijah business? That's going to be an interesting curiosity to them. It's going to cause them to want to find out what this order of Abijah is. And in the New Testament church, at the time that Luke was writing, the Bible they had was the Greek translation of what we call the Old Testament. Interesting. So the New Testament church at this time, when Luke was writing, would be filled with... uh, Lots of it, the churches that he was writing to would have been filled with Gentiles, most of whom were not from a Jewish background, and therefore they're going to wonder what this Abijah bu- business is. So they're gonna, it's going to want them to go back and find out what this Abijah business is. What is this, what, and why is it important? Well, it's important to us for several reasons because it allows us to date a number of things like when this event occurred, but we we'll, may come back to that later because um, that's very important for dating the birth of Jesus but we'll come back to that later both of them were righteous before God living blamelessly according to all the commandments and regulations of the Lord wow that's pretty impressive Well, that's a whole lot of, of regulations to be living by isn't it hmm. at least by their standards then that was the case but they had no children which is sort of contrary if you live righteously you ought to have children right but they had no children because Elizabeth was barren and both were getting on in years now there's a parallel here to another very important uh, father uh, of faith in the history of the church uh, of the Jewish people actually and that would be Sarah. Sarah Elizabeth Abraham Zechariah absolutely interesting parallelism here in there there's more of that to see once he that Zechariah was serving as priest before God And his section was on duty. He was chosen by lot according to the custom of the priesthood to enter the sanctuary of the Lord and offer incense. Now at the time of the incense offering, the whole assembly of the people was praying outside. Then there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing at the right side of the altar of incense. So here he is, he's in the temple, He's standing there with this sensor. I'll bring my sensor so you can see what one looks like. Standing there with this sensor, swinging it with the incense flowing, and in the midst of this really mystical kind of creepy setting, suddenly there appears an angel of the Lord. Now, everybody's outside praying. You're in there all <laughs> alone. And an angel, it was smoke billowing into the air. <laughs> What was in the incense? Oh, what was in the incense? what <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> Good question. Uh, it was, it, it, literally, it, it's supposed to be frankincense, uh, pure frankincense, which has no odor, by the way. It was in Colorado. Huh? Yeah, it may have been in Colorado. <laughs> well, it must have been some kind of drugs. I don't know. But maybe it got some bad incense. I don't know. Saw a bad dealer. I don't know. That's, that, that's an interesting joke. But, <laughs> uh, yeah, they're all outside. He's inside. He's offering the incense offering. He's doing his job. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord Standing at the right side of the altar of incense Verse 12 When Zechariah saw him He was terrified Of course he was And fear overwhelmed him Remember you're in a really holy place You make one little mistake You're liable to be struck dead by God You don't normally see angels running around. An angel appears. What's your first thought? What did I do wrong? But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. Your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son, and you will name him John. You will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He must never drink wine or strong drink. Uh, Even before his birth, he will be filled with the Holy Spirit. Wow. (laughs) He will turn many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God. With the spirit and power of Elijah, he will go before him to turn the hearts of parents to their children. And the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Now here you hear echoes of stuff that you will remember. And because we just went through Advent, you will remember that John the Baptist was doing out in the countryside, out there at the River Jordan, calling people to repent, make straight the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. Be prepared for the coming of the Messiah. And you notice it says uh, uh, that he will... Uh, uh, with the spirit and power of Elijah. Okay? Now he was asked, are you Elijah? He said he wasn't. One of the prophets, no. Are you the Messiah? No. But here this angel is telling Zechariah he will he will function, he will proclaim, he will act with the spirit and power of Elijah who will go before him to turn the hearts of the parents to their children, and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous, to make ready a people prepared for the Lord." Wow, that's a big job. And this guy has the right pedigree for it, his kid's, you know, his kid is a descendant of priests. That ought to be a priest's job, right? Interesting. Zechariah said to the angel oops how will I know that this is so I mean you know come on I'm an old man and my wife is getting on in years (laughs) rule number one don't doubt an angel (laughs) the angel replied I am Gabriel I stand in the presence of God and I have been sent to speak to you And to bring you this good news. I stand, first of all, in the presence of God, what do you do? You fall down. You go on your face. Gabriel stands in the presence of, you're doubting me. I'm Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God and I've been sent. Well, who sends an angel? Angelos means messenger. I've been sent to speak to you and bring you this good news. <laughs> Don't doubt me. But but now because you did not believe my words which will be fulfilled in your in their time it's not that his his doubt is going to make those words not come true. They will be fulfilled in their time. You will become mute, unable to speak until the day these things occur. I mean, if you're going to run off at your mouth, the first thing you say to an angel is not, wow, thank you, but how's this going to happen? I'm old, my wife's old, how can it possibly happen? Whine, whine, whine. Well, if you're going to run off the mouth doing that, then until it occurs, you're not going to say another word. Hmm. Wow. Questions? Tons of questionable stuff here we could talk about if you want. We can come back to it later if you want. Meanwhile, the people were waiting for Zechariah and wondered at this delay in the sanctuary. So they couldn't hear what was going on. When he did come out, he could not speak to them. And they realized that he had seen a vision in the sanctuary. He kept motioning to them, and remain unable to speak. I'm sure there are times when you want that to be true about your preacher. (laughs) When his time, I mean, usually when you see an angel, you you can't stop talking, right? Well, no, not here. Hmm. When his time of service was ended, he went to his home. After those days, and that phrase, after those days, is an idiom which means pretty much, Right now, immediately Without delay but Let's translate it that way Without delay His wife Elizabeth conceived And for five months She remained in seclusion She said This is what the Lord has done for me When he looked favorably on me And took away the disgrace I have endured among my people the, the, There's a lot of structure A lot of, lot of argument on that one The idiom seems to indicate, in its usage, immediately without delay. But how long that is is another question. You talked about that some with the dating of Christmas. Yes. How do you how do you date Christmas? You can date Christmas from these events. But even if you were to assume that it was as immediately as possible by biology, so at most another month, then she conceived. You can then utilize that to calculate the birth of John the Baptist and therefore the birth of Jesus. Since he served in the order of Abijah, and each order served in the temple twice, and we know when they were supposed to serve, when in the year they were supposed to serve, you can calculate up from that by counting backwards when John the Baptist and therefore Jesus was born. Interesting. And the answer does not come to December twenty fifth <laughs> for Jesus, <laughs> not for his birth. All right. Back to Elizabeth. B. Yes. Aaron. Yes. Way back there. Yes. So does that mean that she simply did not have children, or that she could not have children? And how would we know it's her fault that they didn't have children? <laughs> um. There's a really strong argument that this could say that it's his fault. Because <laughs> um, it's often blamed on the woman to begin I'm with. Sure. Um, the Greek is not helpful in that. The term, word, the, term, the term for barren generally means a woman who cannot, cannot. have children. Right. Not, not that, not that she part. hasn't because of some other reason, uh, chastity or whatever, but, but because she physically cannot. No, that's what I it's the same word that is used for, for, for Sarah the exact same word is used in the or Greek Hannah. translation, or Hannah. In the Greek translation of the Old Testament they utilize the same word as is used here in the New Testament, Greek, and it means cannot have children. It's not an important point, though. just no. interesting to you. Um, it is interesting. My, my general opinion is it's probably his fault and what happened was is that he got fixed <laughs> the other way around <laughs> in, in that occurrence in the temple. But then yet at the same time you also have to remember she's getting on in years. Now what that means is another matter. Different translations render that slightly differently but what, however you understand it, she's not young. And if you understand it as a parallel with Sarah, menopause is come and gone. So, I mean, that makes it a miracle in and of itself. Which means you've got two miracles here in Luke's gospel. You've got the miracle of, uh, of Elizabeth conceiving and then you'll have the on the on the far end mm-hmm. of reproduction period, and then you'll have Mary on the other end at the very beginning, just before it's possible conceiving. Interesting. But we'll 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 come to that in a second. <clears throat> in the sixth month, in this verse twenty-six. Now we come to the. Come to the beginning of the story as we normally hear it at Christmas time. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a town in Galilee called Nazareth. To a virgin. Oh boy, that one has risen just tons of of discussion. Parthenon, literally in Greek, Parthenos. Parthenos in Greek, the Hebrew word that would be translated here, and the word that is translated in Syriac and therefore Aramaic. In translating back into what it would have been the language of the period, um, is alma, and alma means literally a prepubescent girl who's on the verge of being able to become a mother. She's at that stage where it's possible, but just barely. It's not speaking so much of virginity as it is her young maidenhood-type understanding. She is a young, young woman, just barely able to conceive. Parthenos in Greek means virgin, unspoiled, untouched. Alba in Hebrew means young just at the cusp of being able to conceive. Not quite fully there yet, but almost at the point, all right? But in Greek, it's Parthenon, Parthenos, and it literally means virgin. To a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph. Notice, engaged. Are they married? No. To a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, this is the, this is the angel of the Lord, uh, Gabriel. And he came to her and said, Greetings favored one, the Lord is with you. Well that's a good thing to hear. Whew. I mean I really want to hear something like that. But she was much perplexed by his words and pondered what sort of greeting this might be. I mean you know why would an angel come and speak to her and say that to her? I can just see her saying, what in the world? She's sitting here by the well, and she's got her water, and here's an angel, and appears, and he goes, Greetings, favored one, the Lord is with you. Huh? I'm a 14-year-old girl. What are you talking about? Greetings, favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was much perplexed by his words and pondered what sort of greeting this would be. And she does a lot of pondering, by the way, throughout this whole story. (laughs) (coughs) The angel said to her, Huh? Yes, it does. Unlike Zechariah, who immediately whined and complained, now she does ask a question. But Zechariah, he's she, he was much more ready just to blur blurt out. She's pondering. She's wondering. She's questioning. She's she's willing to listen. Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Wow, well, that's really good news. I mean, you really that's the that's the message you want to hear, right? Right. And now you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you will name him Jesus. For he he will be great, and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his ancestor, David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Wow. That's just amazing. I am going to conceive and bear a son who will gain the throne of David? Wow. Mary said to the angel, How can this be, since I am a virgin? Now, really, the question's not that much different from what Zechariah asked, is it? But her soul's in a different place. Her spirit is in a different place. Her question is probably articulated quite differently than Zechariah's is. Zechariah's is articulated kind of abruptly and whiny. Hers is, how can this be? How's it going to be possible? I'm just a virgin. And if you understand it as Alma, it makes even greater sense. It's not that she not just that she's pure or untouched by man. She's not really even personally, physically capable of conceiving yet. She's getting to that point. She's not quite there. Not quite to uh, what's the term? Minarchy. Uh, <laughs> Mary said to the angel how can this be since I am a virgin the angel said to her the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you therefore the child to be born will be holy he will be called son of God you don't have to worry about this it's not your problem it's going to be done by God in God's own way that word overshadow is used in several places in the scripture, including uh, on the Mount of Transfiguration, when Jesus is there with Peter and James and John, and this cloud comes and overshadows the The ma- same word's used. Cloud comes and overshadows or umbrellas, over, overcomes, uh, uh, canopies the mountain. Well, the same word is used here. Protected is one possible meaning. Shielded, covered, you will be covered, shielded, protected. Therefore, the child to be born will be holy. He will be called son of God. And now, your relative Elizabeth, in her old age, has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month for her who was said to be barren. She's, she's six months in. Not, uh, three to go. For nothing will be impossible with God. So he tells her this for a couple of reasons, one of them being, look, if she can conceive and bear a kid, so can you. Then Mary said, look at her response. Here am I, the servant of the Lord. Let it be with me according to your word. That is one of the most powerful humble affirmations and dedications that anybody can make. And it is the reason why Mary is probably amongst the most important characters in the proclamation of the gospel story. And why she then, later on, became very important for Christians, especially much later on. Um, her devotion, her willingness to say yes, even to such a personally Difficult calling as this She's not yet married She's, she's an Alma And a Parthenos and Here she's going to conceive and bear a kid And have all of this happen Wow And yet Instead of saying oh find somebody else Instead of doing it, pulling a Moses and saying I can't do this mm-hmm. Instead of being like Abraham Or Sarah laughing at God Which they both did She says, let it be with me according to your word. Here am I, the servant of the Lord. That's why every Christmas I preach to be like Mary, to be willing to do what verse 38 says she did. To simply say, let it be with me according to your word. If only we all could do the same thing. And and what is she saying she's willing to allow happen to her? To have the Son of God be conceived inside her so she could then bear him to the world. And at this point, she has no conception of what's going to follow that, Mm. other than what the angel has said about he will be great and be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord will give to him the throne of his ancestor David. I mean, that sounds wonderful. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will be no end. That sounds great. Doesn't sound like he's going to go to the cross and die? That's the catch. Mm -hmm. How does he go about doing this by going to the cross and dying, as the story relates, but... We know the end of the story. She doesn't yet. Wow. Then the angel departed from her. Now notice, Luke, and, and, and it continues, we have her going down to visit Elizabeth. We probably need to start pulling to a close. This class will run between an hour and an hour and a half. My intention is to always be finished no later than 2.30. And to try to pull us to close about this time, so we have a chance to have any more conversation or questions um, on a regular basis. And 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 so just keep that in mind, and I'll try to watch the clock on that. Um, here we've got we've got Zechariah, temple struck dumb because he questioned and whined at the angel. And now he goes home, and Elizabeth conceives in a miraculous conception, having been barren, being old, suddenly she conceives. She's with child, and now the same angel who spoke to Zechariah in the temple has headed up to Nazareth, and not in a place of auspiciousness, but, but where this young woman is pulling up water out of a well. Uh, he meets her, and he says, you are favored, and you will bear a son. And you will name him Jesus and all this other stuff that we know from the Christmas story. Um, We have this powerful articulation. And then what's coming next uh, with regards to Mary going to be with Elizabeth and all? What is the perspective? What is the perspective of this story? Whose story is this? Well, I know it's their story, but the women's perspective is very strong yes all the way through Zechariah as important as he is is irrelevant really pretty much Uh, he gets struck dumb so he doesn't get to speak anymore after opening his mouth and putting his foot in it so it's not a guy's story it's told from the woman's perspective you know how rare that is in the ancient world and even in the Greek ancient world that's extremely rare Matthew's Gospel tells the story from Joseph's perspective. The guy's side of the story. Luke tells it from the woman's perspective. Mary's side of the story, and through Mary, Elizabeth's side of the story. Interesting how that happens. There are traditions in the church which state that Luke, one of the people Luke spoke to, was Mary herself. Is that possible? Yeah, it's possible. It's not super likely, but it's one of those possibilities. Because she, you know, she was alive when Jesus died. She was alive during the early period of the church. So it's theoretically possible that he got this straight from her. Or he got it from a source that got it from her, which is the greater likelihood. This, is, this material is all unique to Luke. All of this is found nowhere else but in Luke's Gospel. Nowhere else will you find anything about the background of John the Baptist except Luke's Gospel. Nowhere else will you find what the angel says to Mary, except in Luke's Gospel. The angel goes and talks to Joseph over in Matthew's Gospel. Why? Because Joseph was getting ready to put her out. I'm not gonna marry her, she's pregnant. Uh, Here, it's Luke's Gospel that gives us the woman's perspective. Mary's perspective. That's important. It's not the perspective you would expect. Think about it. In the ancient world, women were property. They were not legal entities that could engage in commerce and legal transactions on their own. And they weren't normally listened to or had positions of authority or power. And yet, even as late as the 80s AD, or maybe late 70s, but even as late as the second generation of Christians, it's clear that women still had the ability to command the respect of the church, of someone like Luke, the author of the gospel, and and their stories were listened to. And we will see that throughout the gospels. Um, yes there's lots of patriarchalism in there but there's also a very strong thread of, of message that comes from the women's perspective that we frequently overlook and the fact that it's there speaks really strongly about its authenticity this isn't something that would have been made up now there are lots of skeptics who say that the new testament was made up Decades and decades after the events. Had they made this up, they would not have made the women the heroes here. Zechariah would have been the hero. Joseph would have been the hero. Mary's dad would have been a hero. Not Mary. Not Elizabeth. And it wouldn't have been told from their perspective. Well, and also the fact that they're poor people. Yeah, they're not powerful. Well, Zechariah is. He's a priest. He's an, he has an important position in the society. Even if he's not wealthy, he is a priest, and that's respectable. But, and, and they're righteous, but she's barren, which is a negative strike against her. But Mary, I mean, they're not powerful, wealthy people. We don't know what her family did. We don't know what Joachim and Anna did, the traditional names for her parents. We don't know what they did. But they lived in Nazareth in Galilee, and there's, I mean, no reason to think they were anything other than either fairly low level merchants or farmers. Really, no reason to think anything other than that at all. They certainly weren't powerful people, they weren't highly educated people, they weren't super important people, they certainly weren't powerful people, they weren't highly educated people. So, yeah, they weren't super important people. You have been listening to a Bible study by Dr. Gregory Neal, Senior Pastor of the First United Methodist Church in Commerce, Texas and Rector of Grace Incarnate Ministries. Copyright 2015 by Dr. Gregory S. Neal. All rights reserved. For more information, or to listen to other seminars, Bible studies, or sermons by Dr. Gregory Neal, visit us on the web at www.revneal.org. That's www.revneal.org. You are also invited to visit us in person at First United Methodist Church, 1709 Highway 24, Commerce, Texas, 75428. This program was produced by Dr. Greg Neal.